Welcome, everyone, to Dolls of Our Lives. This is the podcast where we're reliving the American Girl series, book by book. I'm Mary, and today we're going to bring you an episode from our Patreon. This is a really great online community, but also means of getting an extra episode from us on a topic that we think lives within the world of the show. In the past few months, for example, we've tackled a Magic Attic book, Allison Goes for the Gold. We read a really great memoir about genealogy called Ancestor Trouble, Um, Selma Blair's autobiography, Mean Baby, the novel The Birch Bark Diaries, which I loved, the musical 1776, um, a children's book on Watergate, and so much more. So for $3 a month, you can join our Patreon and get an extra episode and also access to our Discord community, which I describe as AIM buddy list, but better, but updated. I guess I'm just an elder millennial, like, please don't judge. But if you can get onto the Discord, you'll find a lot of great channels where you can chat with people of similar interests. There's meetup groups, so you can make some IRL friends if that's your jam um, who may have similar interests. Um, There's a listener who started a book club. There's a listener who runs a pen pal program and periodically a crafting gift exchange. There's a crafting channel, a queer channel, a pop culture channel, so many different things. Like, shout out again to the community who was with me on the day when we all lived through the question of whether or not Harry Styles spit on Chris Pine, because that channel really got me through that day. So, you know, I'm just going to offer a moment of silence for them. Thank you. Not in, you know, sadness, but just purely appreciation. Um, I really love this community, and chances are, if you like our show, you'll love it too. So if you want to join, you can go to our website, dollsofourlivespod.com, click on Patreon, and join us there for $3 a month. This is an episode that we did on a biography that was suggested by listeners. On the Discord, you can also suggest topics for these episodes. And we're so glad that we have that because this is how we found a biography called From Sarah to Sydney, The Woman Behind All of a Kind Family by June Cummins. Now, Allison and I had never read All of a Kind Family, which is sort of embarrassing to admit in retrospect, considering how amazing those books are. And the biography itself was fascinating to see how rich and layered um, Sydney's life was in terms of her years before creating this book based on her own childhood and the years after. Um, she was con- involved in a lot of radical politics, um, you know, had a really rich and interesting family life and sort of like thinking about how weird it is to write about your own family in fiction or just kind of like how complicated that is. Maybe I'm just thinking too much about this because I just finished Prince Harry's memoir you know, if you want us to cover that, let us know, people on Patreon. But I'm I'm in a weird place with that book. I don't even know how to feel. But all to say, it is complicated to, you know, tell stories about your own family as we learned from reading this book. And as I hope you'll learn from listening to and enjoying this episode. So without much further ado, let's get right into it. So today, Allison, are we taking on our listener request how would you how would you describe what we're doing today we are tackling a much requested and much beloved children's book as well as a biography of that children's book author we are talking about from sarah to sydney the woman behind all of a kind family and our first time reading all of a kind family yes i mean you know i don't really have much of a history with this book 
or this author. And I think I kind of have to say I'm embarrassed to say I wasn't really aware of this author or the series of books for which she's famous until, you know, we kind of got into making this show and we heard from folks about it. Yeah, so people often tell us about their other favorite childhood books outside of the world of American Girl or things that are sort of adjacent. And when we released our episode with Leah about the Molly books and what people in Molly's circumstances would have known about the Holocaust and Jewish culture, we got this huge response that when we got to Rebecca Rubin, we would have to read All of a Kind Family. And I'll just say this book gave me this totally heartwarming afternoon. I wish I had read it sooner. You know, I'll be totally real and people might cancel their Patreon for this. There are a lot of parts about Little Women that are a slog when you actually go back and read Louisa May Alcott from the 21st century. This is a fantastic book about a group of female siblings that you can read in like one sitting. Yeah, I mean... When I put down this book and we read, I read at least just the first volume in the series, All of a Kind Family, I just sat down and was like, this was delightful. Yes. Like, that's the word that came to mind. Like, this was delightful. I felt so, like, cozy and held and just, like, I want to know this family. And I feel like I really did know them by the end of the book. Like, you know, when when Henny, like, gets into her, like, hijinks, you're like, oh, like, that's Henny being Henny. And, like, you know, all of them, like, with Sarah and all of them, it's like, I feel like I know this family by the end of it, which is quite a feat for somebody to do in one book. Yeah, and so we had heard that, you know, in the same way that we often say, like, we're Molly's or I identify as a Beth in the parlance of little women. People wondered for a very long time about the woman behind the all of a kind books. This woman who, you know, is is named Sarah and then becomes this Sydney Taylor, this kind of person who like reinvents herself. Who is she based on? And there is actually a Sarah in the series. Uh, the all of a kind family is comprised of Ella, Honey, Sarah, Charlotte, and Gertie, who live with their parents, Mama and Papa. And spoilers, but you know, this book has been out since 1951. The book also ends with the addition of a little boy who is going to kind of disrupt this vision of the all of a kind family. This idea that there are these sisters and these parents and they kind of all go out and they match with their like excessive underclothes that we learn all about. But the book is is really like very tight chapters about these young girls and their life in New York City at turn of the century. Yeah, and something that I really appreciate about this book is that it's sort of didactic without being dictatorial. Or in other words, like you learn a lot about Jewish holidays and what the rituals are for each of them and their meaning and their origins. But it doesn't feel like you're in the Jewish equivalent of a CCD class where like things are being taught like at you and not to you and like you're being converted. It's just like a very delightful tour or invitation into their family life which is organized in large part in a sense of time around the Jewish calendar. Yes. And it's just, it feels like you're being welcomed into it as opposed to being lectured in a sense. Um, And it's, you know, it's just very sweet. Like you can see, you can really feel how much the family is connected, how much they care for one another. 
and they all have different roles in the celebrations of these holidays. And like, it's just, it's really nice to walk through this, like, I don't know, is this about a year in their life, this first book? Um, and just see like how the their practice of their faith is a part of their life, but that's also not, you know, stepping into Sydney Taylor's shoes, which I won't even pretend to do, but sitting down to write a book about Jewish family life in a climate that, a publishing climate that had not really published anything like this before. I imagine there was a lot of pressure to faithfully represent this period of time as like a historical moment and also like the practice of Jewish family life in this moment and how to not make it like purely a religious book or about, you know, Jewish ritual, but also to incorporate just like fun and everyday family life that a lot of readers who are not Jewish could relate to. And I think she really straddles that line really well because you just have these really funny moments of like kids being kids along with, you know, like things that come up to challenge the family, like illness or economic hardship or other things. Like it's just, it's really well done. It is. And just to kind of give people like dates if you're trying to chart this. So Sydney Taylor, who was born Sarah Brenner, uh, lives between 1904 and 1978. And she chooses to write this first book and then later a whole series set in 1912. And the person that is sort of called her avatar or the one that is like most closely mapped onto her own experience is a little girl named Sarah who is born in 1904. So that is like very much based on her experience. The book is really, I would read you the summary, but I don't think it helps at all. Uh, All of a Kind Family is like really these tight, tight chapters on like incidents. And we'll talk a little bit about what we learn about the writing of this book after going through from Sarah to Sydney. But they're these kind of like loosely connected moments that are all kind of strung together by like the beauty of this family and the way that this family really connects. One of the only kind of through lines that is helpful to know is the book opens with this highly relatable situation that someone has lost a library book. And this is a crisis because it's going to cost a lot of money. And as someone who always returns books late, I get it. We learn initially only of this librarian as kind of the librarian, but we ultimately learn that she is Kathy Allen and that this friend who kind of orbits around the family, Harbor, aka Charlie Graham, is actually like her long lost lover, which I love. Like the book actually does culminate in something cool. cool. But by the time you get there, you've experienced all of these seasons with the family and like a set of hijinks. And while that's kind of something that helps to advance the plot, you're just sort of happy to be with these people. Yeah, like when I first started reading the book, I was like, so what's like the central conflict of this book? Or like, what's the plot? There isn't. And then pretty quickly, I was like, okay, there isn't one. And I also don't really care because I think by that point, I had hit the plot line of or the moment where all the girls get a penny a week as allowance and two of them collude to buy cho- to buy candy and crackers and they hide them from their mom so they can eat them in bed and i was just kind of like this is iconic like i would do this and i know that like some people feel strongly that you shouldn't eat in bed but like i'm not one of those people 
and it feels like very luxurious but also I love when little kids like feel like they're getting away with something and it probably their mom knows because she makes the beds and like also probably doesn't care but it's like this weird like experimental chaotic moment of independence for them and it's just like it was really sweet yeah and I think where I really got sold on on what I now know is an iconic scene from this book is I flipped like pretty early into it and there's these beautiful illustrations in the version that I have of all these little girls. I flipped to a page called Dusting is Fun and I needed a content warning for that because I I really was like (laughs) not prepared to be sold on that. Dusting was one of my chores in childhood. And what I like about this is we get to see a mother who is like described as resourceful, but we get to see it in action. Essentially, none of her daughters want to do certain tasks. So the mother gamifies it and she hides buttons and other like she kind of makes there there be an incentive for wanting to dust around the house. And we follow Sarah through this task in this like extremely delightful and pleasant way. We learned in reading the bio of Sydney Taylor that there's like more to this from her own childhood, but I I think a lot of what's happening in this book is an actually very difficult childhood gets to be reframed through these lovely moments, which is not unlike what was happening in Little Women, where the reality and the fiction are pretty far apart, but the author gets to make the reality what she wishes it had been. And and that's like a really cool chapter of like reframing what was kind of a controlling childhood situation and a lot of sort of angst around dirtiness into a cool game uh, that was just fun to read. Yeah, I thought that chapter was really um, instructive or just really interesting in terms of like you're saying the mom being like within the world of the book it's like wow this mom is really clever for gamifying dusting because i i like certain chores dusting is not one of them like i love vacuuming i will vacuum like anybody's house like i find it meditative i put on my podcast like it's me in the vacuum like i'm zone i'm zoning out but like dusting for some reason is frustrating to me because it's like i feel like i never 100 percent complete the task or like there's immediately dust back where i've just dusted So, like, that's my personal drama. So I admired this mom for, like, figuring out how to get the girls interested. And in an interesting way, like, when the daughters are taking their turn to go in and dust, you see that they do have objects that are delicate, you know? And so you're like, okay, so economically speaking, we know the family is struggling a bit because the dad owns a junk business. And, you know, like, they're not, like... They're like balling on a budget, basically, but they do have certain objects that are consumer goods that they just admire and that they love. So it's like it's 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 hard to place how much they make or like where they're at, but they're not by any means like middle class per se, but it's presented like they're aspirational middle class. But at the same time, it's like, okay, so kind of like Louisa May Alcott, she's looking back like she's writing. This is published in 1951. She's looking back on 1911. Like, who is this book for and who is this nostalgia for? Like, what work is it doing? Yeah, and we also have what I thought was like a pretty refreshing without it being sort of like gl- like glorifying certain aspects of the poverty. There's so much in this book about sights and smells of the Lower East Side and kind of the world that greets these girls. Part of why they are the all-of-a-kind spectacle is... 
we know because the narrators are telling us that they have to wear like layers and layers of clothing that are kind of like cobbled together by the mother, but they have this presentation that's very important to them, that's very neat. And when they get outside the family, they get outside of the tenement um, where they are living slightly better than others. We have this like paragraph that I just loved. The east side was not pretty. There was no grass. Grass couldn't grow very well, couldn't very well grow on slate sidewalks or cobblestone gutters. There were no flowers, no tall trees. Tall gas lampposts were there instead. There was no running brook, but there was the East River. And then we get this whole kind of visual of like the colors and the smells. And I appreciate that we kind of got to like get into that sensory world with them. And she's definitely trying to make a contrast between like their whole world is not nice, but their mother has cultivated something apart from the junk shop, something apart from their community, which is this room of special things that has to be cared for. And that's really a connecting point throughout the whole first part of the book is they lose a library book. The parents don't just bail them out. They have to take care of it. They have to fundraise. They have to earn the candy that they want to be able to buy. Then we have this kind of whole plot that just like pulled me into Cecile and Marie Grace territory of a quarantine and sickness. Thankfully, we get out of it and we get to go to the beach, but we have like very different episodic worlds that we get given and we never really forget that we're in the Lower East Side. Um, And the author at one point, Taylor, calls it a foreign land in the midst of America. Like we are reminded that it is different. Yeah, and I think that that sense of difference is something that the book is trying to navigate, like along with the family that it's portraying, because, you know, as we were saying, like the world of the book is organized around mainly Jewish holidays that are a really big deal in their family life and in their community. And yet you also get like a from nowhere celebration of the 4th of July. Yes which is seemingly taken up with the same level of seriousness as the Jewish holidays. So, and it feels from nowhere to me because it comes, I think, after their beach trip. But other than that, it's like we don't really leave the, the world of the neighborhood too much. And so it is like its own like country within the rest of the city and within the rest of the country. So it is, and also like it's interesting that the library lady and um, Charlie are like the interlopers in their world. Yes. So it's not like the non-Jewish Americans are the majority. It's like they are trespassing by voluntarily entering into this Jewish community space. And they, they're the ones who have to figure out how to speak the language culturally and otherwise amongst these families. And it's really nice to see how they're in relationship to one another. But it is also like a stark difference between their worlds or like you never forget that they're different. Yeah, the the 4th of July scene screams, this book was published in 1951. <laughs> this, this book screams, yes. nobody try to do research on the fact that Sydney and her husband are socialists. Nobody panic. These this family celebrates Fourth of July. They're thrilled about it. They're loving the fireworks, even though they are in this very tight community and they speak a language that some other readers might not recognize. It's like nobody panic. This family is going to be fully complete by the end because they are going to get a brother. There's gonna be this like weird snap at the end about boys don't play with dolls and like you know, 
it is interesting to me because I think like the way I tend to think of like all of uh, is like all American, right? So I, I think there's like a lot of play here of they are all of a kind, but they also know that there are situations where they have to act as if they are keen on assimilation or as if they just are assimilated to, to not be a target in a book that came out in 1951. Yeah, and I think that year, 1951, is important to stick with for a second in terms of like thinking about like the nostalgia that's kind of driving this book and who it's for and like what's happening here because it's really interesting that like the nostalgia like creates like an edit of what she will and will not recall. So you read that passage before about like the smells of the neighborhood and there's a scene where they go to the market that's like hugely sensory where they're all deciding like what snack they're going to buy basically and you you can just really imagine like the smell of all this really wonderful food that they're walking past and describing but it's like there was a lot of bad smells too Mm -hmm. in 1911 and especially if you're living in a neighborhood without like indoor plumbing or you know like water that's like being safely like moved in and out of your house like there's a lot going on there that like was gritty and not safe and like situations with like trash removal and everything else and that is not in this book and nor is there any like anti-semitism in this book which i actually think is a good choice because it's not it's presenting like jewishness as not a source of trauma like it's actually like a source of joy and love and it's bonding them all together but i think that coming out in 1951 is a really like powerful choice like right after the holocaust to not define jewishness with trauma, I think stands in contrast to a lot of the children's books and movies that we were exposed to that come from the 80s and the 90s that we talked about with Leah. Like so much of Jewishness that's presented in pop culture to non-Jewish audiences really exploits the Holocaust and she purposefully does not do that. No, no, I mean, she's kind of rewriting her childhood and, and what turn of the century and early 20th century Lower East Side life was like and to talk a little bit about from Sarah to Sydney the woman behind all of a kind family Jane Cummins who wrote that book it came out just last year in 2021 spent I mean years and years and years basically trying to get at what was Sydney Taylor's life or Sarah's life and what what does that have to say or how did that contribute to the way that she chose to wrote these kind of iconic characters and the argument of the book uh, this was put about Yale out by Yale so it's an academic book is kind of saying like okay so what are the connections and like what does this book say about Jewishness that's what the press promises I think this is actually really a pretty like straightforward biography, which is nothing to be ashamed of. Like I think it's a really solid biography. And the reason why I think those two things are different, this is not a zoomed out book. This is a book for if you really no. wanted to know everything about the woman who wrote the All of a Kind family books, if you are trying to look at this from what they would call a micro-historical perspective, right? Um, What does this woman tell us about her period? You're not going to get that, but you are going to think about her periods differently because you know her story. Like, there were many times reading this book where I thought, gosh, it might be kind of helpful to like zoom out for a minute. And it's like, nope, we're at the beach with her boyfriend, Ralph. We're not doing that. We're we're staying at the beach. I mean... 
we were staying at the beach and those photos were like fascinating and looked fun of her at the beach. Yes. But I mean, it's sort of like you're saying like this, this biography could have done like a Forrest Gump approach to be like, this woman is at the center of all of these important moments in American history. And instead it's like, this woman has a very fascinating life story. Yeah. And that's what's really important for us to talk about. And I think partially, I think it's because of the exposure that the authors had, and we'll say plural, because as you learn very tragically, when you open this book, June um, Cummins, who wrote this book with Alexandra Dunyates, Allison? I How think do we that's think right. We say that? Yeah. So she, um, Alexandra came and finished this book and helped June, um, who sadly uh, died of ALS during the writing of this book. So it's a very tragic origin story of this project. But June spent a lot of her professional life, it seems, researching and trying to, you know, center the importance of Sydney's contributions to children's literature. So that's really important to acknowledge. And because of her dedication to the source, um, she and Alexandra had access to Sydney's only child's home and the private papers that she had there. Um, Joe and her partner had, like, it seems like a lot of papers in their basement, audio tapes of two of Sydney's sisters describing their memories um, of growing up that they recorded in the 1980s. And I think another sister wrote an unpublished biography, I think. Um, And it's like there's scrapbooks, there's travel journals, there's drafts of speeches. And these people wrote an insane amount of letters that I think she kept carbon copies of. Mm -hmm. Um, So it's like the source base and the archive of this book was incredible. And I think, you know, if you're writing a biography, I think one of the main challenges is figuring out like what story are you telling and what, you know, everything feels fascinating, but not everything needs to be in the story. So what, how do you navigate that? And I think this biography veers more towards, we're just gonna include it. We're gonna include every detail. Um, and, you know, it makes for like a very rich story, but not necessarily one that, as you're saying, is like, here's how we're going to place Sydney in these like important historical moments that, you know, she's representative or not of. Yeah. One of the most helpful things that I think we learned in this book is that Sydney Taylor or Sarah, however you want to think of her, Sarah being her, her given name when she was born she had this tendency to write like really rich, thickly textured scenes that didn't always string together. (laughs) And when she didn't have like the best editor, she didn't really have a lot of success getting things published. She also had this fascinating career uh, working at a summer camp where she did a lot of writing and had this like incredibly vital and important community around her. That was so helpful to know because it's something that for me was an asset of the book, the strength of the individual scenes and the way that it flowed. But you could see how when it wasn't in the right hands of the right team, her writing would be a little bit harder. I think that, you know, unintentionally, some of that also happens in From Sarah to Sydney. I have this really good sense after reading this book about what it was like for her to be a middle-aged woman teaching at this camp in Port Jervis, New York. I also have this really good sense of what it was like for her to grow up with a mother who didn't have access to birth control and desperately wanted it had this really good sense of what it was like for her when she was courting. 
And then there are other periods where I think because of source base or like balances in the book, you don't think that I don't think you understand the author quite so well. But I was also pretty content to get lost in the story because I had never heard of this woman. And now I'm really shocked that I hadn't because I think her life is pretty illuminating. And, and I think if you didn't grow up with these books, it's still a great biography because you're learning about the 20s and the 30s and the 60s from a completely different angle than you may have before. Yeah. And I think what was interesting to me was like, as you move through those decades and are learning about those those eras, the ways that her life does map, does and does not map onto what you might expect of a woman living through that time. And, you know, so I think her family life is really interesting and learning about her mom and like her mom's Germanness and like how much the mom like in a way was like nostalgic for her own childhood in a way that Sydney grows up to be nostalgic about her childhood. So like she grew up middle class in Germany and like had all this fancy furniture that her brother sold to then go to America. And then it's kind of hard for the mom to like downgrade as an immigrant. And then she's constantly trying to recapture what she had growing up in a sense. And like, I think you see how that translates to how she raises her daughters to like really represent like hygiene and cleanliness and their clothing is meticulous. And then that's replicated in the book where all the sisters have like meticulous and like like starch matching starch outfits. Like it was cool to see like these small connections that obviously carry much bigger meanings. Yeah, and something I absolutely loved in this biography was knowing what she kept her entire life. Like one of the things that she keeps is a graduation dress that she made for herself. And she also keeps these letters from this period where she's really trying to understand her sexuality. She's trying to figure out what it means to be a woman in this world that is changing like really quickly. And she has all of these different kinds of flirtations, these different kinds of relationships. And we get to read along as she kind of figures out like, okay, this is not a kind of relationship that I want. This is a relationship that I do want. I think one of the more interesting things too is she and one of her very good friends and the man she ends up marrying seem to be pretty into the Socialist League for the vibes and the hangouts. And we know that because in later years, they really don't keep up with the politics at all, but are like very, very into for a short period of time, the social events. Yeah. I mean, it (laughs) seems like they're there. They're there for like the hangout. They're like, I'm just here to hang and like meet people. And she even goes on vacation to like a socialist summer camp and like... She's like, yeah, there's all these lectures and whatnot, but like I'm also canoeing and I'm like going to this dance. And it's like, it sort of sounds like a nightmare summer camp where someone's like, would you love to hear it listen to a lecture about socialism? And it's like, absolutely not. Um, But, you know, she's there, she's meeting people. And I found the letters around her courtship and like that period of time really fascinating because I'm not used to reading letters where someone is just so candid especially with the person they're dating about like sexuality and what they're comfortable with and just like navigating like what they like I guess but I mean at one point when they're married and they've had sex she basically writes to him and is like I'm not really into it with you and it's like whoa it was like so uncomfortable to read where I was like I can't believe you're saying this to this man or like but it's like good for you for being this honest but it's also like 
I wonder how they navigated that. And like, you don't really learn what the resolution is. Obviously, they stay married and they have a daughter and she transitions from being this working woman who I think likes working and having her own money and her own recreation time to then being like partnered with him and a mother. But she she has like a life even her mother would not have recognized in the sense of like, she doesn't get to go to college. She graduates high school, gets like an office job. But she's also like performing as a member of a dramatic league and she's part of the Martha Graham dance company and like taking classes and her future husband founds a journal to offer like serious critique of modern dance and you're like whoa like these people are living. I also I love I really appreciate a lot of the writing in this book and there is a part uh, about the courtship between Ralph and by by then Sarah has been calling herself Sydney for some period of time. That's part of her own kind of like self transformation. And you can see sort of like some of the thinking out loud by the historian chronicling this. Ralph drew humus, humorous figures on his letters, and he wrote and illustrated a comic strip styled on The Perils of Pauline, which if you've read Meet Rebecca is pretty central to that. Pages of tormented conversations may make one wonder why they kept punishing each other, but Taylor and Ralph amused each other as well. And I think basically she's finding like really weird flirting between people that she admires, but maybe wouldn't want to hang out with in any other context. We also see a huge difference between the way that Sydney gets to have some basic control and, and does seem on some level, I don't know that it's like said explicitly, to be choosing motherhood, right? And even though that that's really loaded for her, and that's such a contrast, as you're saying, to the experience of Silly Brenner, her mother, who really has almost no control and is is driven, like, quite ill over it. Uh, I mean, reading this the week that I was, it was all over the news, right? You know, changes in women's access to abortion. And it, it was hard, right, to read, like, the violence mm. that her mother commits against herself as a form of birth control. Like, the book doesn't blink and doesn't cover that up. And it's an important contrast to the mother who's like Mary Poppins-ish in All of a Kind Family. Yeah, I think it it really is. And it's also an interesting juxtaposition that we just read, or at least I just read the first of the All of a Kind Family books, which ends with the birth of the, the family's first son. Yeah. And the father like weeps at this news. Like when he's told you finally have a son, he weeps. And the daughters are like, dad, are you okay? Or like, Papa, are you okay? And he's like, I'm so happy, can't believe this. And I read a review of the book that was basically like, this isn't feminist, like as progressive as she thinks she is, like to end the book with like the moment of triumph is like, well, you finally have a boy. So therefore your life has meaning as a parent is like not a great look. And there's a part of me that's like, yeah, I get that. But it's also like, What's obscured here is, as you're saying, like the real anxieties about birth control, period, that like not every pregnancy, like when you're in an economically fraught situation, like pregnancy sometimes is like a great source of stress, like no matter how you're feeling about it. And, you know, so I just wonder like what how she viewed depicting pregnancy and like just navigating like family life in her own books as we learn in this bio, like how stressful it was for her own mother. To to know that like that was such a huge part of her life and to know that the way that she chooses to rewrite 
the addition of a family member and specifically a boy as a moment of just pure joy, right? And excitement. I do think there's like a lot to be said for the fact that she's getting to go back to her childhood and write it as she wished it would have been. And honestly, my my favorite parts of this book are the conversations about stories she tells people regarding the origins of it. Was it something that was submitted to a contest? Was it done behind her back? Did she really ever have aspirations of being an author? And even though she changes careers so many times, you get this sense and where this book kind of, the biography I think kind of really has something to say about her is this is a girl who grew up in a very dense corner of New York City and could have been just part of another family whose story never got told. And she had the determination to make her story be known on some level. And you can say like, oh, well, she's not exactly Sarah in the books. She wishes she was, though. And, and I think that's like a huge, huge piece of this. Again, in the same way that Louisa May Alcott's dad was not really there, the father in Little Women is a fantastic person, right? There's a lot of fulfillment that comes through getting to kind of rewrite this mm. story. And I I really like liked that piece of this, right? Like that she starts to really learn how to write is not always successful and has like a wide range of ideas for things. She has issues with copyright, like she's got all these these different pieces happening. And like what a gift that this book actually came out because I wouldn't have known anything beyond the fact that there's a Sydney Taylor prize if this book hadn't come out. I wouldn't have never known like this fuller story. Yeah, I think something that's interesting about all of this is like, I think the major accomplishment of the biography is simply that it exists, yeah. as you say, to make space for Sydney Taylor as a person who made significant contributions that have not been acknowledged. And in fact, for Jewish History Month, if you want to go on Wikipedia, her page is severely underdeveloped. So even just using the contents of this biography, we could build out her page on Wikipedia and contribute to even more people learning about her. But what I think is really interesting is the way that her own her own deft performance skills may have undercut um, people understanding the degree of to which she's responsible for her own success. Because part of what the book describes is that when she comes up with these origin stories for how she got into writing this book and basically says like, oh, my husband took it from my a box where I put old manuscripts and he submitted it to a contest. And, you know, later she says like, well, my daughter, I told my daughter stories falling asleep and about my childhood. And that's also what inspired it. And she kind of navigates it. But the thing she maintains throughout is like, well, I'm just a housewife who types at my like kitchen table and my husband's the one who really has the mind for business and like without him I wouldn't be doing this. And that is like simply not true. No. Like if you read this book, you're like this person is as enterprising as Louisa May Alcott or anybody else who has a strong sense of themselves and ambition and not in a bad way, but like really wants to tell her story and like own her voice and even like pushing back against this editor from the beginning who wants to secularize her story and you know make all these changes like she really owns her story but what's interesting then knowing how active she is behind the scenes is like okay thinking about performance yeah she's doing a lot of wish fulfillment in her in her depiction of her childhood but she calls herself sarah in the book but we learn in the book that she, at around 14, makes an important pivot to wanting to be called Sydney. 
And it's not purely like a Taylor Swift thing where she's like, well, I want a more ambiguous name so that professionally people will take me seriously like on the page. Like if they're not sure if I'm a, a what gender I am. It's also, she says that she enjoys like dressing like a man to like ride on motorcycles, like and wear a men's cap and all of this stuff. So it's like she's really playing with gender roles and like navigating that. But it's it's simplified back to like presenting as female in her nostalgic view of her own history, which is kind of interesting. Yeah, the official uh, summary of this book, um, when it's describing that, um, describes her as boyish. And there were a few places where I kept thinking one of our um, really lovely listeners, Peyton, recently had a thread go viral about Louisa May Alcott and different ideas about like gender representation and transness with Louisa May and it's it's really fantastic and we'll have to link to it in this and it rightfully went viral and all this like really compelling evidence and I kept thinking hmm I wonder if there is actually like far more to this kind of throwaway piece of the story I also wondered if there was some kind of internal purging either later in life or by Ralph and Sydney's daughter about the politics because there is a part later in this book where we learn that Ralph, who is a very high-ranking person running the Caswell Massey Company, is essentially like anti-union at some point or, or against the actions of a particular unionization and doesn't really seem to be acting super pro-labor, nor does Sydney. And so you wonder, like, do they kind of do their own internal purge on their earlier years and how political they were? How how much is Sydney like keeping certain parts of her archive about the way that she's experimenting with men and then discarding others? We don't know. I do think it's smart of the people who finish this biography to point out, you know, for better or for worse, June Cummins and her team spent every summer for years with Sydney and Ralph's daughter. And so what that tells you is she had like a very close, like within the family source. We've also learned enough about this family and maybe even just being part of a family ourselves. That doesn't mean you got everything, you know, like you're never going to get everything. Yeah, absolutely. It's kind of like that probably apocryphal story from Harry Truman that's like he came down the stairs and saw Bess like burning a ton of papers in the fireplace and he was like Bess like what about history and she says exactly and you're like whoa crazy (laughs) um but like people's capacity to self-edit is like you know obvious and we can all probably understand it like think about your own inbox what have you purged what are you hoping no one ever finds because you might be embarrassed by it. and But with Joe like being the person who's holding the keys to the archive, it's kind of fascinating because without really knowledge of like what Joe is like, the book, the biography also lays out in really stark detail like how homophobic Sydney was yeah. to her own daughter's emerging queerness. And, you know, her daughter has an awakening or an understanding of her own queerness, like, as a young teen at summer camp and, like, has a passionate crush on another girl that's reciprocated and there's letters. And Sydney's, like, writing to the crush. Like, there's so much going on with that where it's like, whoa. And she's not, like, saying it's a sin. Like, there's no, like, you know, after school special calling out. But it's, like, hugely discouraged as, like, this is a stage and you're going to move on from it. 
And Joe does move on and she marries a guy named Steve who's not Jewish, which is also controversial. But then they grow to respect Steve, it appears. And then you like kind of find out as an afterthought, like, oh, and Joe and Steve got divorced and she ended up with a long-term partner who's a woman. But like with all of that context, it's really fascinating to be like, would Joe feel the need to purge content that showed her mother herself was questioning her own like sexuality, but definitely maybe not sexuality, but definitely gender identity. Like, what are the politics of that? And how can someone who as a young person was so progressive, according to themselves, like their own account, then grow up to be like hugely conservative in these other ways? Like it shows how complicated people can be, if nothing else. There's also, I think, at various points in this book, so much of this book was about camp more than I ever would have thought. And again, it brought me back to our conversations about Molly. And there is something that made me feel a little bit validated, which is that Sydney was part of this world of a certain kind of camp that, quote, was the kind for creative kids who were miserable at places that made you do color war. So I felt like, okay, that's kind of validating for me. But I think you're led to believe in the progressive motherhood chapter that there are various ways where Sydney is trying to be this really creative, almost like Montessori driven mother who's very open and then part of what crystallizes this moment of conflict where Sydney is really reacting very strongly she has this like terrible homophobic reaction to her daughter and part of this is also that her daughter has been exposed to a broader world than their home she's met people who are opening her up to things she talks about her girlfriend Hannah as someone who like really lights her up creatively and then they come back and Joe has found a way to lock up her letters and I think it's one of many moments in their relationship where for her own self-protection Joe is literally locking up a part of herself from her mother um and then mm-hmm. it's sort of like we're in and out of the camp we're in and out of these like various contexts but I almost wish you know that we had had more voices to say, and this is what my experience at the camp was like, because so many times we're getting Mm. everything from these POVs that I don't wanna say are untrustworthy, but that are so specific. Like we're, we're, we're getting corroboration from her daughter or we're getting corroboration from like a letter from her husband. And it really helps sometimes to take that giant step back and say, you know, and and here's how we know that this person was really exceptional, or here's how we know that this person was right on the money. Why was Sydney reacting as she was? Obviously, part of that is personal to her. We will never know. Are there rules in this camp world about same-sex relationships that we're not being told about that might help us to better put that in a context? We have no idea right? Were all of her friends dressing up as, quote, boyish people and hopping on motorcycles? You're not really sure. Like, you get passing references, but it's like only hearing from Joe does not actually flesh this out. Yeah, and I think one of the challenges of the book, or perhaps a weakness, is like when we were getting into this section where they're exploring Joe's sexuality and like Sydney's really strong reaction against it. And as you're saying, like in in that part of the book, you're really screaming for like we need we need some context here, like SOS. Like I need to know like the context of 
Joe as a Jewish girl at a summer camp who's having like some queer experimentation. Like how singular is this? How, you know, endemic is this? And the footnotes are about some scholarship on the histories of lesbianism that are really dated. And the reason I went to check the footnotes was because the author at one point started making these like really broad generalizations about lesbian behavior and like history and development that really like just kind of I felt myself like being taken out of the book by in a sense by like feeling like a very broad generalization about a really complicated topic. And I feel like to your point, it would have been really interesting to have like oral histories with people who attended that camp who in around the same era, like what was your experience? Like what was the vibe of this camp? Like what's a day in a life at this camp? Because even you get the sense that like this was a hugely important place for Sydney. Like it's where she's trying out her storytelling. She's still like keeping her dance history and her performance history alive. And you get the sense that it's like very empowering for her as a mentor and as a teacher. But I have no idea of like what this camp was like. Like I just know it was really important to her because we're told that. But we don't really know like what's a day in the life like like if you're a teacher, if you're a camper. And then like the kind of social world of the camp where Joe is like bl- blossoming in this like very specific way and Sydney is acting like, you know, she's from outer space in a way. But we're also told that Sydney gave Joe the well of loneliness, which is like mm. this famous early lesbian novel. And it's just like, whoa, like that's kind of interesting. Like I just feel like there's a lot more there that we're not being told. There there are many points in the book where I think if June you know, had been able to, like, I can't even imagine, right, you know, the persistence and the perseverance that she had to have to finish this project and obviously how important it was to her. I keep going back to the way that this book was framed for the market, which is that really trying to convince people that this particular author gave people a way to think about Jewish identity and culture And I just genuinely do not think that is the most interesting aspect of this book. I think the most compelling reason why you should read it is it's a phenomenal American life. And it's a story of a person who, you know, just by the own framing of her most famous book, grew up in a family where part of what made people notice her was that there was like four other kids that looked like her, right? The notion of being all of a kind and then becoming a standout for telling that story. That's really cool. I really like that. And I found myself really delighted by just how it didn't feel inevitable that she became this author. She's kind of goofing off for a few years. It's not like she's like the world's best student. She pees her pants during the school pageant, you know, like there's not a straight line from, that is her, right? I think so. I was just thinking, wow, I didn't remember that, but like I'm amazed by that your recall and I trust you that that's right. (laughs) There's there's not this line from, you know, Sarah Brenner making her own graduation dress, which which was common for a certain class and training at that time, but to, you know, woman whose name is used to convey the absolute best of Jewish depictions in literature you don't have this sense, right, that that is like completely what defines her as an author. And I don't know if I'm I'm ashamed to admit, but I'll just admit, 
reading that the New York Times review of this book came from Jennifer Weiner, I don't know that I've ever connected that she had a Jewish background. That That's not, you know, I think like we, we live in a society today where we're fortunate that we have this like wider group of authors, still not nearly as diverse as it could be. I think to some degree, this book makes the case that Sydney Taylor was only going to get published if she entered the market with a Jewish family that publishers thought Gentiles would read and that Jewish readers would still respect and that that was a horribly narrow line for her to walk and she somehow did it in 1951. Like to me, that's the reason you should read this book. That That's like in and of itself huge. It's really huge. And it's also just like there this this bio is sort of like Sydney Taylor's an onion and you can just keep peeling back the layers. And I think that that's real. Like there's so many fascinating like contradictions and like the challenges that she had to get through to get to this place, as you're saying, to navigate this really kind of arduous task of like pleasing all these different audiences and and holding on to her story, even when her own editor was like, this is too Jewish, like you need to make it more Gentile friendly and insert like a 4th of July celebration. And, you know, she even says like in a book that we didn't read a further volume in the series, um, the editor suggested that the family take in an Italian immigrant orphan named Guido. And she has to push back and say like that would not have happened in 1910s Lower East Side New York. And here's why, like because of, you know, like how communities were organized and how they related to one another. And just like her sense of self and her like total command of her culture and her story is so impressive because I think in publishing and in like a lot of fields, it's very easy to feel like imposter syndrome and intimidated. And yet she really is confident in who she is, especially as you're saying, because she didn't grow up as someone who was like at 12 years old, like I'm going to be a writer. That's my singular dream. Like she had all these other lives before this that are all equally fascinating And I think like something that we haven't discussed necessarily, but I think that's equally interesting is like in some ways these books allow her to explore the complications of her own nostalgia and the sense that the family that she writes about, which is the family that in some ways she grew up in, was avowedly practicing and religious. And yet, as we see in the bio, she marries a fellow former member of the Young Socialist League And even though they move away from those beliefs, her husband is very secular. He's not religious. So the only place that she celebrates the religious holidays she grew up with is in her parents' home. Like all of her sisters return there while her parents are alive and they celebrate the holidays together. And she grows up to not have, you know, grandchildren who would read the books that she's writing, you know, ostensibly to inculcate children with like the importance of maintaining these traditions and the culture. So it's kind of like she is like part of the problem that she's writing the book to solve which is like further as generations move away from immigration and are and are more assimilated they're like moving away from these like rituals and from the culture like that's a broad statement which is like not universally true but just like in broad cultural strokes like that was a thing people are worried about so it's interesting that like she's on both sides of that coin. We also learned that when she becomes a prominent author and kind of a voice and authority on children's literature, she's often asked her opinion about other books, including books that are depicting slavery and experiences of Black children. 
And I think that this author does a, a, a hard thing, which is sort of, she still has this great respect for Sydney Taylor, but she also puts that, I think, very well in context. And there's this long quote, uh, page 301 to 302, where Taylor has been asked to give feedback on, on some books that she really does not think are, are hitting the mark on what children should be reading. And she basically says, like, there's this book I'm supposed to read. I haven't even read it to report on it. This is what they are choosing and exposing to children to today. They wonder why children are growing up so awful. And we're kind of meeting this like older, slightly less like pleasant version of Sydney, who is not willing to just like fawn over other people in the industry. She's kind of made it and she's been burned a little bit. But there's a, a really smart part of this book where we learn that Sydney is asked to give her opinion on quite a few books that that could be kind of regarded as like children's literature on black American experiences and she's of two minds about that right like just because she's written about one minority group doesn't mean she's an expert on all but also kind of not wanting to lose her position as a voice in the field that was like something I totally didn't expect out of this book that again I think there's so many portions of this where you will learn so much and gratefully, I didn't come into this having read all of the books and I was never confused, right? I don't I don't think the all of a kind family books are meant to be like mind-blowing treatises. So I think you can kind of keep up and right. you can still learn a lot, even if this like like if Henny and Sarah and Gertie were not part of your childhood, you can keep up. Absolutely. Although I will say that if you can even just read the first volume before you read the bio, I think it really does enrich the experience because it is fascinating to see like how she does and does not change the reality of her childhood for the book. Yes. I also until because I came into the book knowing that it wasn't until I read the Times review which lays this out, you know, you get like a good amount into all of a kind family before you are explicitly told that they are celebrating Shabbat and that this family is Jewish. And I did not flag that when I read this book because I came into it with the knowledge that that was part of what made this book important. And I thought, wow, that was like a really, must have been a really like long conversation of real strategy to choose to do that when this book was coming out. Did you notice that? What's that? That it's not like hitting you over the head? That, that it's it's really not discussed, that you have to get a third through this book, through all of these different pieces right. before something is brought up that signals to you, um, as this review says, that this quote, relatable family is different. I liked seeing how she sort of like, I guess it's just been a while to me that I have read a child a children's book that is not obsessed with like a very tight plot. Like to me, the most notable piece of this is that it's really like a meditation. Like we're moving through time with this one family and we sort of pause and sit with them through different moments. And then we kind of like keep moving through time. But there's no like linear plot except for the Gentiles. Like really the only people who face any conflict and resolution are like the library lady and Charlie who are like star-crossed lovers who got lost from one another and are reunited through their mutual friendship with the family at the end of the book. Yeah, you're so glad that that library book was lost because that's what really like pulls the librarian. I also have a lot of respect for the fact that Sydney Taylor makes 
loving books a key part of this in the same way that American Girl often makes loving dolls a really essential element of their books. And I read that the American Library Association in, you know, it's covered in the biography and I saw this written about elsewhere. Like that was a good play because librarians loved the depiction of them as like positive and warm community figures and not these sort of scolds, right? That like she's understanding and she actually really wants to develop a relationship. And I have to believe that this author was like doing that on purpose so librarians would love her. Yes. And I actually thought that it's like a very shrewd marketing move, as you say, to like present librarians in a positive light and the experience of going to the library. But I think for me, what's really significant is like the way that she describes these girls going to the library on a Friday afternoon is like so strongly enshrined to me as like a ritual. Like every Friday afternoon, they all go together at a specific time to to the same library and like do the same order of event, like of events. And and to me, I was like, that really resonated with me. Like, I actually got emotional reading it in a sense because, you know, in my own life, I was raised in a in a religion that was like in a similar way to this family, like organized our sense of time and family. And, you know, I don't practice that like in the same way that Sydney becomes culturally Jewish. Like I would say I'm culturally Catholic at this point. But I feel that way about going to the library, too. Like, it's a ritual for me, and I find great meaning in that. So I really appreciated that, as you're saying, like, the Jewish rituals don't emerge until a third into the book. But the way that this was described did feel like a ritual to me, too. Probably, and on some level, kind of, you know really more revelatory than we even realized about Sarah becoming Sydney, right? Like the way that she creates herself through writing, the way that being at the camp and making plays and writing books, like really truly like writing her own story as she wants it to be. And kind of the fact that she chooses to foreground a ritual around reading and sharing a love of stories before anything religious, probably like tells us far more than we would have ever realized without reading this. Like in the same way that I've appreciated reading bios of Alcott to better understand the worlds that are depicted in her books. I think if you have any interest in this at all, like this is definitely well worth your time. (laughs) There's also going to be parts where you're like, okay, we're at a socialist picnic. All right, now fast forward, we're on their European tour. I also loved Caswell Massey products, so I was shocked to learn of the connection with Ralph. I worked at a museum that I I worked at a place where we got a huge shipment of this stuff. I now know the year that Caswell Massey formally closed, Ralph's Biz for many years. I didn't I didn't know like any of that was looped together, but I love a Caswell Massey soap. So thank you, Ralph Taylor. Wow. See, I need to like I didn't have time to look up the store before this. So I was genuinely curious if that still existed. I think you can still get it some places, but like the actual Caswell Massey that her husband was running and that frankly bankrolled a lot of their life for many years and Joe's Mm -hmm. life. You know, the fact that he had this kind of stability, which she found boring at times, fair enough. I love those products. And I remember us getting them at the little museum I worked at was this huge influx of Caswell Massey and and really had no idea like the full extent to which it was connected to 
this whole world. So that was kind of a neat thing. Again, like when you write this kind of micro historical or biographical work, you can say like, oh, there's a world in the grain of sand or this grain of sand makes me think about the world differently. I haven't used that part of my brain thinking about biography like that in a while. So I was really grateful to this book that it forced me to kind of think that way. It is more academic than what we typically do for this show, but you know, not everything can be Watergate for kids. <laughs> not everything can, although we might wish it was at times. Yes. I mean, we haven't gone on that journey yet together. So I don't know if I will be taken out by that, but I hope I survive it. Yeah. Oh, yeah. I mean, I'm going to be like doing that episode via flashlight. I'm going to be starting to store everything oh my God. in like boxes. I think, okay, spoiler, I'm going to come out as pretty pro-Nixon. So just be prepared for that. Um. Why? The EPA. Do you like the EPA? Do you like the Clean Water, Clean Air Act? Do you like any of those things? I do. I mean, like those are just preferences that I have, but I'm going to be coming out pro-Nixon because you know what? When you need information and you need, you know, like counter intel, you need what you need. Um. Okay. <laughs> well, this will be a really interesting episode. <laughs> Sorry, Edward Snowden. Um. I mean, I did just buy that new History of Watergate that just came out, and I'm not sure if, like, you know, every, like, History of Watergate, like, they go on and on because they can, so it's, like, 900 pages, so we'll see what happens with that, but, you know, I'm excited to go on this journey with you. Like, Watergate always brings out something crazy in both of us, and, you know, I'm excited for us to, like, lean into that passion. Like, why not? Like, it's summertime, and sometimes when some other people want to, like, chill out in the summer, they, like, go to the beach and stuff like that, and, like, that's not the energy that we will be bringing to this situation. No, not for this Pride Month. For this Pride Month, we're going into the archives for something inexplicable. <laughs> yes, and I we'll have to do some other, like, I recognize it's Pride Month, and on the Gagey channel, for those of us who have joined us there on Discord... We've had conversations about, like, should we do a watch-along or, like, a read-along? And, and we'll make it available to everybody. And I'll, I'll throw a question out on the general channel and see if people are down. Because I don't want to forget that it's Pride Month, especially in the era of Don't Say Gay. I don't want us to be part of that. But, um, yeah, we, we feel called to go to Watergate. So that's what we're, we're doing. We can't wait. No. And if you have ideas, we love to hear them. Uh, we planned a bit ahead for these months, but we are open past that. So we love to hear what you have to say. Suggest children's books, things that you think we absolutely should read. Sarah to Sydney was a listener's suggestion, as was All of a Kind Family, highly, highly suggested. So we really love those. Summer opens us up to all sorts of interesting things. Uh, you want us to read more of like a beachy novel that is not meant to be derogatory, but if you want us to read something that's kind of more in that vein, I know that I am certainly open to it. Um, just don't make us read any really sad Dear Americas and I'll be happy. I don't want that at all. I want to watch something fun. I want to like read a celebrity memoir. Like I want to read a beach read. Like that's where my head's at. Yeah. So if the listeners could comply with that and like give us some really cool suggestions, you all have great ideas all the time. So I can't wait to see where we go next. I mean, we know we're going to Watergate, but I mean, how can we possibly top that? I was afraid you were about to say like you thought Nixon was hot. That was where I was afraid that was going. Oh, I think younger Nixon is. Yeah. I mean, I don't have any problem <gasps> with that. Oh, God. Oh my God. Um, 
All right, I will have to address that off here. <laughs> I, I'm scared. Um, okay, no, we're all free to make our own choices. Um, okay, well, this has been fun. I genuinely enjoyed reading this book. I feel like I learned a lot, and I really loved All of a Kind Family. And I can't wait to like gift that to people because it's just such a, it's such a like, it's such a just a delight. And I would love to share that with more people. So, thanks to everyone who suggested that. What a great, what a great time that was. Um, all right. So Allison, if people want to get in touch with you, possibly some more suggestions, talk you down about Nixon, like where would they get in touch? Yeah, I'm easy to find at Allison Horrocks, you know, much like, you know, records that you might be searching for in a building late at night. You can also reach out via wow. the show um, at a girls pod on Twitter, American Girls Podcast on Instagram, call our hotline, any of those things that might speak to you. Uh, Mary, if people want to give you some of the, you know, sort of like pro Nixon talking points, where should they reach out to you? I mean, they should probably not reach out to me about that. Like if we're being candid, I don't really know that I'm like, that's my headspace, but I'm interested to hear what you think about Nixon. So even I guess if it's positive, I will listen. I don't really want to be converted at this time. But, you know, find me on Instagram at Mimi Mahoney. Find me on Twitter at Mary Mahoney 123 And in particular, I would love to hear from people about what they think the best adaptations of Watergate material is. Like, what's the best Watergate film out there? What's the best Nixon depiction you've ever seen? And, you know, we'll look into it. Awesome. Thanks, everyone. See you on the next episode.